Well, let's read Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixture of and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all but eight of them, declares the Lord. This is what we have called the New Covenant. Jeremiah is declaring to Israel, God through him. And this is a um, chapters 30 to 33, so just one less than what we're doing tonight. It's called the Book of Consolation, or the Book of Comfort. And we see that Israel is being sent off into exile. They've been displaced from their homeland. Their nationality has been diminished. They are scattered abroad, most of them in Babylon, in this pagan city. And there is wondering of, did God leave us? Is the covenant broken from Is his relationship with us over? Is this a final divorce? Are the promises that he promised to bless the world through us? Are those promises over? Do we forfeit those? What does the future look like? A lot of questions at this point. And so Jeremiah composes a book of what God's future world looks like and assures them that he is not done with his people. Well, we're going to, um, the title of tonight's message, if you're a note taker, is Living in the Spring of Hope. Living in the spring of hope. And that's what we, I hope, we do after tonight, is that we make the choice to live our lives in the spring season. What do you mean by the spring season? I mean between winter and summer. So I'm going to share with you guys a portion from the Chronicles of Narnia, this is in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And you guys have either seen the movie, read the book, or have heard of it. Um, or not. But I'll give you a, a brief 
intro intro here. There's a land called Narnia, and four children discover it um, through a wardrobe, and they enter into this land, and instantly they're struck with the brutal coldness of this land. Narnia, it's under this long, cold winter, and there's a phrase that goes around that they find out as they go around and meet people that is called always winter and never Christmas. So it's all of the brutalness of winter and none of the benefits of winter, if you know what I mean. And it just goes on and on and on, and it's a never-ending winter. That's what this place is. And, um, well, one of the characters, Edmund, he has this sort of power struggle with his older brother, Peter. And he's always, you know, he's that younger brother, the one that always is looking to get an upper hand in life. And he meets the wicked witch who has caused this winter across the land that never ends. And she promises him that he will become king if she follows him. And like Adam and Eve wanting to be king themselves, he kind of bites into it. He, he takes the Turkish delight, if you will, and uh, goes with her. And um, through the story, you find that he is cold all the time. The winter is brutal and harsh to him. And there comes a point in the story where, well, you know, Edmund, you, you know the story, he doesn't actually just become king, which is wicked, and he becomes a slave, and he begins to feel sorry for himself. And the world is cold and bitter and harsh. And there comes a turning point in the story. What Edmund doesn't know is that Aslan, the king of Narnia, who had been away for some time, returned. And things are going to be made right again. Aslan is here. All is okay. But while Edmund doesn't know this, things begin to change in him as well. And he's on this sleigh ride with a witch. And she sees some critters celebrating and turns them into stone, because that ought not to be in her wicked kingdom. And right when she turns them into stone, it says this. That Edmund, for the first time in this story, felt sorry for someone besides himself. Look at these critters turned stone. And suddenly his world became not just him and his misery, not him and his exile, if you will, from his siblings. But now the world got bigger. And you know what? Other people are suffering. I'm not the only one in this wasted winter land. And then it says, as they continued on, soon Edmund noticed that the snow which splashed against them as they rushed through it was much wetter than it had been all last night. And at the same time, he noticed that he was feeling much less cold. It was also becoming foggy. In fact, every minute, it grew foggier and warmer, and the sled was not running nearly as well as it had been running up till now. At first, he thought because of the rain, they were tired. Well, that wasn't it at all. Um, and it begins to describe how snow begins to fall off of the trees, and flowers are beginning to poke through the snow, and the, and the meadows are beginning to look you know, dotted with color. And what's happening? Things are beginning to turn, right? From winter to spring, and this is... Um, what the witch's elf says, as they're looking at it, like, what? Things are being the thought. And 
the, the dwarf, not the elf, the dwarf says to, to the witch, this is no thaw, said the dwarf, suddenly stopping. This is spring. What are we to do? Talking to the witch. Your winter has been destroyed, I tell you. This is Aslan's doing. <laughs> I like this because it speaks very much to the time that we find ourselves in, doesn't it? We are in this world that has gone through seasons of its own. You have the opening of the Bible in the Garden of Eden, and all things are good, all things are blessed, and everything's in harmony, everything's working. It's as if it's the pinnacle of summer. Everything is at its fruition. You know, the, the trees have never been heavier with fruit. The, the ground has never looked lusher. Everything is working well. And then the fall happens. <laughs> Adam and Eve fall from this state. They rebel against God's kingship, and corruption enters into the world. Just as you see in the autumn season, things begin to fall, and the leaves begin to be shed off of the tree, and the grasses begin to get browner, and they begin to wither, and it, it's, the summer is in a state of corruption. And then it begins to spiral and spiral, and you get to the very bottom of it, and you're at the dead of winter. It's barren, and nothing is the way God has intended it to be. It's cold. It seems to never end. It's bitter. It's always winter and never Christmas. And that's where we find the story of the world until Jesus comes. And he begins to do things that looks like winter's beginning to thaw. A blind man sees. A deaf man hears. A lame man is running and leaping. A demon-possessed man, exiled from society and his family, has been freed from that possession and has been restored to community. Lepers are no longer cast off, but they are restored and welcomed in once again. And then, to climax it all, in a garden nonetheless, Jesus comes out of the tomb of death as a resurrected body and begins a movement that follows him called the church and they begin out they go out and spread his message and imitate his deeds and it's, it's as if this long harsh winter where it's never christmas is slowly thawing and things are beginning to come to life and god has also given us promises that he will return that the world will once again look the way it's supposed to look that the wrongs will be made right, the poor will no longer be poor, and the rich will be cast down, and everything will work flawlessly, and that the deserts will bloom like a garden, and that there will be rivers of living water and the tree of life accessible to everybody in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, and the new earth. And there's these promises of a future hope, these promises that summer is going to return. And so this is where we find ourselves today as the church, is we are living in spring. We are between the dreadful winter of no hope and not quite yet at the fulfillment of our hope of summer. We are in that between state called spring. <laughs> and sometimes we look at spring and it feels cold and it snows at times in spring. And some of us look at the season and we think, oh, it's just all horrible, horrible, horrible. No Christmas, no joy. 
But others of us look at spring, and despite the snow, we see that the blossoms of the almond tree are beginning to look beautiful. Little apple blossoms in that tree, and oh look, the tulips came up, and different things, and I hear the sound of the bee buzzing around. Spring is that season where both hope and curse are overlapping one another. And we find in the book that, yes, it did happen. Last week, we saw his letter to the exiles of Babylon. And it came, it was no gradual winter, like, oh, it's a little puppy today, I'll get a coat. And then the next day, oh, it's even colder. And then, oh, it's a snowstorm here. It was a smack dab blizzard. It's winter. Yeah. <laughs> and it happened. And they are exiled. And they're in that cold winter. Always winter, but never Christmas. And here... Here is where Jeremiah now needs to write a book of comfort to them. He needs the people to have hope. Because hopelessness is the feeling that it's winter with no Christmas. It's never going to end. But knowing that there's something beyond the cold blizzard, beyond the ice, that there's something underneath all of this, that there's a new world under all of this, that's what keeps us going. You know, we don't, some of us don't really like winter. <laughs> but we don't absolutely hate it. We can tolerate it because, because, because I know that spring is going to come. And then after that, summer is going to be glorious. It's only a three, four, five month, whatever it is from year to year. It's a season. And because I know that it's a season, there is hope. And I can move on and I can progress. But hopelessness tells me that the present has no promise of a future. That the present is going nowhere. It's going to stay as it is forever. That is hopeless. And that's when life is no longer meaningful. That's where there's nowhere to go anymore. And so Jeremiah needs here to give them hope. And so he writes this book of comfort. And if you read it, you saw lots of different ways he comforts the people. He he talks about things like 31 verse 4, for example. Uh, Again, I will build you. You shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. You don't sing and dance unless things are good. Again, you shall, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. Planters shall plant and they shall enjoy the fruit. That threefold again. It means there was a time when these things happened, it had stopped, but there's going to be time when it continues on once again. Things are going to be fixed, restored. <laughs> Summer will be back one day. And so that's, that's the book of comfort. Um, the book of comfort, using our terminology here, it's a book of summer for people in winter. <coughs> It's a book that describes summer to remind those people suffering in the exile that there is something beyond this. So the barrenness will once again be fruitful. It will be plentiful. Things will be the way they ought to be. And so we see two um, specific clues I want to point out here. Uh, the first is in 31 verse 15. Some, some glimpses of summer, I'll show you. 31 verse 15. Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentations, bitter weeping, Rachel's weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. 
<laughs> it gets better. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your tears, your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. <laughs> and it continues to talk about good things. That passage, that that downer passage, the describing of winter, Rachel weeping for her children in Ramah. Uh, Ramah was up in the northern part of Israel, and it was the place of deportation, we'll see later in Jeremiah. That's where Babylon was taking the Jews from Jerusalem, and they're, they're kind of reassembling there, and from there they're sorting them out. Some of them went to Babylon from there, and so it was the exit point of Israel. And Rachel, who was the wife of Jacob, right, the, the father of the twelve tribes, the twelve sons, the twelve tribes of Israel, uh, so Rachel's kind of like the matriarch, she's kind of like the mother of the people, and she, it's this poetic imagery that the mother of Israel is weeping for her children as they are being sent off into exile, and it's really sad and ugly. And then that word of hope, right? Stop weeping. Like, Revelation 21, the new heaven, new earth, God says, I will wipe away their tears. To stop weeping because they're gonna come back. And Matthew picks this verse up in the Christmas story when Herod slaughters the babies of Bethlehem to try to kill Jesus. Matthew applies this verse to that moment. See what Matthew's doing? It's the turning point in Israel's story. It's some winter is beginning to give way to spring and hopefully soon summer. So that's one glimpse of summer to a people in winter. Uh, the, the other is 31:28. I'm just picking the ones that I thought were highlights. That's 31 verse 28. It shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, break down, overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. So what? <laughs> well, here's something that Jeremiah's doing. He's, he's borrowing words from the first chapter of the book. 1 verse 10, he said he's sending Jeremiah out to break down and to destroy. And to build up and to plant. So God said, I'm watching over, uh, as I watched over to break down, destroy, and uproot, and cast away, that's been fulfilled there in exile. But now, in the same way, I'm going to watch over my word to see that they are restored, they're rooted, they're planted, they're built up. Watching over. Do you remember that phrase? That also comes from Jeremiah 1, verse 12. When Jeremiah is being called into his commission to be a prophet, he's feeling incompetent, right? And God tells him, don't be incompetent. I'm going to be a castle around you. Remember your roots that I've chosen you before you were even born for this mission. And then he told him, look at the almond tree. Remember that? And the word almond and the word watch in Hebrew sound very much the same. They rhyme. <clears throat> so God is telling Jeremiah then, look, Jeremiah, whatever you say, don't worry about being fulfilled. I will fulfill it because I'm watching over my word. Just like the almond tree, it blossoms to announce that spring is coming. Remember, we talked about the almond tree is the first to blossom in the springtime. So when you see the blossoms there, you know that it's happening. 
You know that the fulfillment, the fruition of the almond tree is coming. So he told him, so, no, when you see the almond tree blooming, my words will bloom, they will be fulfilled. And so here he's pulling this imagery from chapter 1, and he's saying, look, I fulfilled my words to destroy Jerusalem and to cast you into exile. I will also, in the same way, watch over my words to restore the people and bring summertime back. Both times talking about the almond tree, pulling that same imagery. I like it. So this is a book about summer for people in the barren cold of winter. All right, so that brings us to the climax of this book of comfort, uh, the what we read, the New Covenant. So he says that there is a day coming when he will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Why? Because the old covenant was broken. What's a covenant? A covenant basically is what God is doing with people, and he's initiating a relationship. And the covenant kind of explains what that relationship looks like, some of the conditions and the benefits and blessings of, of it. And he's saying, look, the old covenant, I brought them out of Egypt. I brought them to Mount Sinai. I gave them my law. I made a covenant with them. And blood was shed from an animal that was ratified, and the people were ordained into this relationship with me to be my chosen people, to become a blessing to the world. That was the old covenant, right? <coughs> <laughs> they broke it. That's why they're in exile. Now, in this exile, they're saying, we're going to make a new covenant. We're going to start over. Now, I want to clarify something. Um, the new covenant is not the same thing as the New Testament. People kind of jump to that conclusion, and they're like, oh, yeah. The Old Testament is done, of course, or the New Testament. God made a new covenant. Um, not, not, not true, for this reason. That's implying that God is done with Israel. Those people messed up, so who on you? And I'm just start over with what the Bible calls Gentiles. That's basically everybody who's not Jew, the rest of the world, the nations. I'm going to start a church, and they're going to be the, you know, they're going to replace Israel. Um, that's not what God is saying here. He's talking to Israel. So you guys, you guys are going to have this new covenant. Right? It's not going to Jews. Amen. But, <laughs> J.C. read from Luke 22, verse 20, for communion. And Jesus says, this cup, representing my death on the cross, is the cup of the new covenant. Huh. Jesus is actually springing into being this promise that Jeremiah is talking about. Now, the church, not Israel, they are the ones who are enacting this covenant. We're drinking the cup, right? We did that tonight. Um, Paul backs Luke up, and Jesus, good idea, in 1 Corinthians 11, 25. He, he pulls from the same passage that Jesus called the cup the blood of the new covenant. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, um, Paul is talking about how they are apostles, or they're messengers of the new covenant, and how it's a better covenant than the old one. But Hebrews twice quotes this passage and talks about applying it as if it's not Israel, it's for this new movement, but the people of God, the church. <laughs> so what's going on here? You know, is God talking to Israel, or has he abandoned them? 
This is what I think we find out. This is why I think this is a climax here of even the book of Jeremiah itself. Is because what we discover at this moment is that Israel is a bigger idea than an ethnic identity. It's not just for Jews. Now, it definitely, definitely starts with Jews. That's why Paul said, I go and I preach to the Jew first, the Gentile second. It's definitely about Jews. And it's built upon the Jewish nation. But what we see happening through the story of Scripture is Jesus is calling a church around himself, and Paul calls them in the New Covenant too, is we find out that, wow, Israel, alongside Jews, is beginning to incorporate people from every nation and race. Just like he told Abraham would happen. I'm going to, through you, bless all nations. And so it's as if you have this river flowing. It's, you know, it's the river of history from the beginning of Abraham on through the ages. And, <coughs> whoa, excuse me. <laughs> and feeding into this river as time goes, you have little streams coming from the mountains, right? Tributaries. And they're flowing in one at a time into the river, and it's getting bigger, and it's getting bigger, and it's getting bigger, until we realize, we step back and we say, whoa, the people of God don't have to be born into a certain race. They're embraced through grace. The people of God is anybody who submits to the kingship of Jesus Christ. The exile is bigger than just people in Babylon. The exile is the state of the entire human race. We are all exiled from Eden, from the very presence and fellowship of God. Wow, this restoration, this promise, uh, chapter, it, it talks about bringing them back to the land. This promise of land, yeah, that's a promise for Israel. But it's also more than just a promise for Israel. This restoration is about the entire human race inheriting a new land. And John in Revelation calls it the new heaven and new earth. This is why Jesus takes a cup and says, all who drink of this, in a sense, are joining into the new covenant. He's not replacing the Jews. He has a plan for Israel. But he's including the lost exiled nations of the earth into his plan for the earth. So, <laughs> this is the promise that we see. And this is what, if you're a follower of Jesus, should be happening to you. Um, in verse 33, we see there's newness. Three, three specific points of newness. First, there's a new heart. 33, but this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. It's as if God is entering in and shaping the human heart to the mold of his laws. So it's no longer this foreign intruder that's trying to tell you to shape up and to change and condemning you and telling you you're no good. But it's God himself coming in and shaping, molding your heart to fit the law. It's within you. It's written upon you. 
He's creating us into people fit for his kingdom. People that can obey his ways and walk in his ways. There's a metamorphosis that's happening, right? So that's that's the new heart. We see the new um, the new relationship. End of verse 33. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There's going to be this union. That's what's new about this covenant, is that the reaction of people will be different. Where Israel continued to rebel against God, there's going to be a day when Israel receives and embraces God. My nations, you and I are going to join in with that. But more so, this isn't just a cute phrase about our relationship. In Exodus chapter 6, God declares his purpose for delivering Israel out of Egypt to do this, to be their God and let them be his people. That's the purpose of liberating them. God wanted to rule over a people that the world could see. They fail at this. God says it's going to happen. One day it's going to happen. And when we read Revelation 21, verse 3, what does it say? It says, to an effect, God is now living with man, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. It's the fulfillment. It's the summer. That's what it's going to look like. That's the things to come. And then the third new myth, so there's a new heart, there's a new relationship, and there's a new knowledge, verse 34. The new knowledge is experiential. It's not just like, from one man to another, now you know, because you heard some words, you read a book. It's this experiential knowledge where every man can encounter the presence of God himself. Verse 34, there no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. That means you don't need an education to know him. Declares the Lord, for I will remember their iniquity. I, sorry, <laughs> I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. <laughs> So this new knowledge, it's, it's this inviting We can know God. We can pause and listen. And pray through the scriptures and listen. God speaks. Doesn't he? When we stop demanding him around, and we start entering into what he's already up to, we hear him, we see him. And this is why I'm very cautious of certain teachers that sound super biblical because they're ranting and raving and hollering and yelling at you that you're not holy enough and you know they're showing you in the scriptures and everything and it sounds biblical but they almost have this attitude of well you're not really the elite Christian until you follow my teachings and it really forms and I see teachers like this everywhere popular uh, where you get the impression that wow I'm not a real Christian until I go to your church or follow your teachings or your systems or your style or and it creates this group of people that just mimic a personality. Be careful of that. I think that God can be known through more than one man's voice. Jeremiah is saying, it's not going to be limited to, well, but I tell you what you know. <laughs> the pastors are shepherds, First Peter calls them. We're no longer the ones forming who God is. We're the ones inviting people to join in with what he's doing. We're guiding. We're showing where the food is. We're protecting. So that's... This is the new covenant. That's beautiful. And that's what we, I believe, if you guys are of Christ tonight, you're, you're participating in that new heart. Your desires are changing. 
You're participating in this new relationship where God is your God and you're his people and there's this king-servanthood relationship. And you have this new knowledge where you already know God and the things I'm saying, it's really just dusting off things that are in there. Like, oh yeah. This is the new covenant. And this is a glimpse of summer to a people in the midst of winter. And when we embrace this and enter into this new covenant, it's something of the future that has brought us to the winter and begins to thaw, and now we're in this place of spring. Because we have the blessings of a summer to come. The sun's starting to feel warmer. These truths are beginning to soak in. But it also snows every now and then, right? And it's also cold. This is what the book of comfort that Jeremiah is writing is calling the people of Israel into. He's calling them to live in spring. There is a future. There is a hope. There is a summer to come. I'm calling it the new covenant. These are the benefits of it. It's to come. So live in spring. <laughs> He's calling them to do. My book of comfort is going to teach you how to do that. And yeah, sometimes... Like I was saying, is that tension, right? Of like, it's glorious, it's almost like summer is here. But then there's those other moments where like, oh, it's so cold still. And I think that what we're experiencing in our between the times is what Charles Dickens described in Great Expectations. It's a beautiful sentence um, in the middle of the book somewhere. It says, it was one of those March days when the sun shines hot and the wind blows cold, when it is summer in the light and winter in the shade. And we have seasons up here, so we know exactly what March feels like. It's beautiful when you're in the sun. <laughs> Look out for the shade. And so this is where we are. Jeremiah is calling them, Look, you're, you're getting some of the benefits now. So... Live in the spring. So, what does Jeremiah do with a message like this? In chapter 32, he shows you what this should do to your life. What does it look like to live in spring? Part of the book of consolation, book of comfort, gives you an example. And it's in 32 verse 6, and it goes on down to verse 15, and I will narrate to you what happens, is that he has a cousin up in Anatoth, his um, hometown. <coughs> Cousin's name is Hamel. And Hamel comes to Jeremiah. Now, remember that Jeremiah, the book, is not in chronological order, right? Sometimes it's like, here we are in exile. Oh, now it's before the exile. That's what we're going to do right now. So chapter 32, this is before the exile. And what we see is Jeremiah's in prison in the king's palace. And the Babylonians are at Jerusalem's door. They're camped out on the ground. And just about every city is sacked, except for two others in Jerusalem. And it's at the final days of their existence. Exile is literally around the corner. And so Jeremiah is locked up in the king's palace in prison. Why? Well, what was he preaching a couple weeks ago? You remember? Don't fight the Babylonians. Surrender to them. Who's paying you to say that? Get in prison. You're not telling my troops to surrender to the enemy. So the king naturally throws him in prison. That's where he is. That's why he's there. And Hanamel comes to him in prison, and he sees the situation, and it's bad. Anatoth is under Babylonian possession. The troops are sitting on that land. And he has a field there. He has a land there. And they're coming up to Jerusalem. And he comes to Jeremiah in prison and says, Hey, 
things look pretty bad. I don't know if you can see that outside or not from where you're sitting. Um, I want to sell my land to you. <laughs> now, Jeremiah says yes. Purchases this land for 17 shekels. While the Babylonians are sitting on it, and he's in prison, and he's been prophesying that Jerusalem's going to fall. This is the end. Exile's here. Really wise investment. <laughs> but you see what Jeremiah's doing? He also is penning the book of hope, the book of comfort. And he knows that there's a summer to come that's going to break in and thaw the winter. And Jeremiah believes that. He sees it coming. And so what is Jeremiah doing? He's showing us what hope does. Not what hope is. We looked at that last week, right? It's the, the continual onward to our future homecoming, right? What does hope do? Hope invests in God's future. And so here's Jeremiah saying, you're all going to come back. That's what my hope says. So then what my hope should do is invest in that promise. So he purchases land. They go through the whole thing. They got like, you know, they sign the documents as witnesses, and he tells them to bury the documents because he doesn't want anybody to take them. When the people return, they want to know this is Jeremiah's land. He believed the promise. He let the hope and act through him. And this reminds me of the parable in Matthew 13, verse 44. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds a treasure hid in a field and goes off and sells all that he has in order to purchase the field. What does Jeremiah do? He, we don't know if he gave all he has, but he purchased the field because he sees a treasure in it. And you can say he gave everything he has. All of Jeremiah's life was committed to preaching God's word. It has led him to prison. He's given everything he has to purchase the hope of summer. <clears throat> so living in the spring of hope, taking from Jeremiah's example here, it means not conforming to the visible reality around you. Visible reality says this. That one took up that land, they're at our gates. They're about to send us into exile. Visible reality says, don't do that. Don't buy the field. Survive. Self-centeredness. You know, grab everything you can get. Fight for life and death. Hope doesn't conform to our visible realities. Hope, rather... commits our actions to connect us to what God is doing. It's a commitment to be connected with his, his future. Our actions begin to demonstrate that future. Or let me put this even more simply. Hope buys into God's future world. Hope buys into it. It says, that sounds good. I believe that. That will happen. Let me invest. Let me put myself into that future. Let me buy into it. And that's what Jeremiah does. 
There's a future. Summer will be here. I'm going to buy into that. Give me a plot of land. I want to be in the new earth. Our context. Do you believe in God's future world? That there is a world, like he said in our reading, um, that, you know, as long as the sun, moon, and stars, and the oceans, and basically the created order, as long as the created order exists, my people will never cease to exist. That's promising language. That actually we are part of God's new creation, his future world. That's why Paul calls us a new creation. Anybody who's in Christ is made into a new creation. In other words, you are now part of the world to come. You can't be destroyed. Do you buy into that? Do you believe that? Are you investing? Are you acting upon that? That's what hope does. It commits us to actions that connect us to God's future. It buys into that promise. So are we like the man who finds a treasure in the field? We want to give everything we have to gain it. I'm not asking us, I'm not at all asking us to purchase, earn God's future salvation. That would be works, right? Want to be saved by faith and grace alone. I'm not asking us to put money down. Like we can somehow secure a spot for ourselves. I'm not asking us to do anything like that. See, what God told them there in verse 34, 31 verse 34, is that the very last sentence, for I will forgive their iniquity and my words to no more. Why is the new covenant happening? Why is there this new heart? Why is there this new relationship? Why is there this new knowledge? Because I will forgive. You see the balance there? It's not, and then I will forgive. It's that God is bringing summer because he has forgiven. He has done it. He has forgiven us. Doesn't just mean that, I have a lot of debt, God wiped it away. That's a foretake. <laughs> he forgave. He did wipe that away, but he gave something in its place. He's giving to us. He's giving the new heart. He's giving the new relationship and the new knowledge. He's giving us a future. He has paid the penalty. I'm not asking for us to somehow earn our way to it, but that through our lives we would buy into it in the sense of conforming ourselves to what the future looks like. That we would be previews, so to speak, of what's to come. Glimpses. That we would learn from the almond tree that was being talked about. That God's watching over his word. He's built into root and the plant and to make everything better. That we would be those blooming trees that are saying, look, look, look. Our hope is not some high in the sky. It's real. Because spring is breaking forth in this people on Sunday night. And a world frozen stiff in the winter of this world looks at Sunday night Bible study and sees life. They see fruit. They see flowers. They hear the buzzing of bees. They see that, few, they see that summer is coming. 
because of the way we live buying in. Our hope is acting upon it by buying into it. We are purchasing the field because of Jesus. See, I'm not asking us to set the table. I'm asking us to sit at the table. We forget you did it. And we're talking about purchasing this field. Well, guess what? Maybe Jesus is that one who purchased the field with his own blood. And when he, when he held up the cup that represented his blood, he said, this is the new covenant. What's he saying? I'm accomplishing this. I'm purchasing you with my blood so that you can be the bursting, budding blossoms of summer in the middle of a world of snow. You can be that hope, that spring. That's what I'm calling us to live in. Live in the spring. Live in the hope. Jesus has done it. He went to the cross. That was his winter moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went into the winter of exile. Three days later, he comes out of the tomb, resurrected. What's that? Wearing the body of the future to come. He comes out as summer. And then he organizes a church in his name that represents the middle, the spring. We are those people, post-cross, right? Post-winter, but pre-summer. We haven't yet inherited the new heaven and new earth. That's to come. And so the church is the witness. We are branching between the winter of his cross and the summer of his future world. And we are here as witnesses that both are true. And that people can move from the winter to the summer by following Jesus with us. So can I invite us to buy into God's future world? To let hope enact the way that we come? And stop being busy about setting the table. But start sitting at it. Realizing that we're not going to bring summer around. That's foolish of us. We're only one moment at a time, like Edmund in the Chronicles of Narnia. He began to experience the warning weather that Aslan brought when he stopped pitying himself and started pitying others. That's what spring does. No longer, you know, moping and kicking rocks because we're in some lousy blizzard. And it knows that it lives in the spring and that summer is the next step. And so it can reach to those in winter and bring them over. And then we'll feel warmer. And the hope that we believe in will become more and more real as the day approaches. So let us live in spring together. Let us, so to speak, go and purchase a field as evidence of summer to come. Father, thank you for purchasing 
Thus. Thank you for this book of comfort being a book of comfort for us as well. Lord, help us as we navigate between winter and summer. Help us to know what it looks like to be spring. That you would bloom gardens of grace here in this Lord, some of our hearts are incredibly frozen. I pray that you would warm, that you would melt. God, that tonight you would thaw us, that our hearts can be the new hearts of the new covenant, not the old frozen hearts of rebellion. And if that's so with you tonight, we are so happy to help you thaw. And there will be pastors in the back. Find them and pray. Or reach out to somebody you're familiar with and comfortable with and pray. We have a God with a bright, sunny future. And I, I want to see all of us moving that way. This winter ends. Praise be to God. Thank you, Jesus.